Well, hello. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at the part of John's Gospel that follows from the prologue. So, uh, we're going to get start with verse 19, and um, though there's some things that has to be explained there, the section ends, well, it ends at 51, but it really ends at 212, which is after the Cana miracle. So we're going to go slowly, uh, and then I hope to explain next time, or maybe this time, um, how how John is trying to unfold for us the reality of Jesus. But before I start, I would like to read um, this text from Origen. I've talked about it a lot, and I finally found it again. This is how it goes. It's the beginning of his commentary on John. I think that John's Gospel, which you have enjoined us to examine to the best of our ability, is the first fruits of the Gospels. It speaks of him whose descent is traced and begins from him who is without a genealogy. The greater and more perfect expressions concerning Jesus are reserved for the one who leaned on Jesus' breast. For none of the other Gospels manifested his divinity as fully as John. When he presented him as saying, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. We might dare say that the Gospels are the first fruits of all Scripture, but that the first fruits of the Gospels is that according to John, whose meaning no one can understand, who has not leaned on Jesus' breast, nor received Mary from Jesus to be his mother also. We need Our Lady to help us with this text, because she carried Jesus in her body. She carried the Word in her heart. She conceived the Word in her heart before she conceived Him in her body, as we will look at slightly when we get to Cana and when we get at the other end of the Gospel. The other two, the only time Our Lady comes is Cana and the cross. So we be we should be related, related, you know, and alerted that um, they, they those two relate. All right. So, the text begins. We just finished the prologue, and now it says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews came from Jerusalem, when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, Who are you? Now, the first key word here is testimony. You might guess what that word is in Greek because we hear it a lot, right? I mean, we hear the explanation. Martyria. This is the witness. To the word martyr, as you know in Greek, means witness. Interesting fact about John's Gospel. He never uses the word for evangelize. Evangelizome, which is common in the... He always uses the word witness. Witness. That's his word for evangelize. Why? If you're going to be a witness, you have to have first-hand knowledge of what you're talking about. You go to court, and you say, did you see that Mr. Jones's car hit Mr. Smith's car? You say, well, I think so. 
you're out. You've got to say, yes, I saw it and I'll swear to it. So, do you want to tell me about Jesus? Well, I got a couple of ideas. Never mind. I'm going to talk to somebody who knows him. And that's a witness. So, you'll find in John's Gospel this notion of witness. So, when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, Who are you? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Messiah. This great expectation ever since the Dead Sea group, there's been this expectation for the Messiah. They spoke about it so much, they spoke about light and darkness and so forth. So they asked him, who are you then? Are you Elijah? Elijah was expected to prepare the hearts, of, turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to, to uh, fathers to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Well, you know, there's this famous text in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 18, where Moses is giving instructions about how to discern prophecy. And he said, the Lord will send you a prophet like me. Now, he meant probably another prophet. But in the tradition, that game came to be an expectation. The prophet, like Moses, will be the one who will complete God's work and promise to us. So when they say, are you the prophet? They're referring to that expectation, which is based on Deuteronomy 18. He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? So we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? Now he answers, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, Make straight the way to the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. This is a key text, huh? This is in Isaiah 40, and it was, oh, it was a big text at the, in the Dead Sea community, Qumran. Uh, if he's saying, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one coming after me is the Lord. Tear the way for the Lord. So the, he's saying, it's here, folks. I am sent to prepare you for the coming of the Messiah, coming of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord, okay? That's what I'm doing. Some Pharisees were also sent. They're the ones who have this very strict observance of the law. They got too strict and too narrow-minded, but you see, they were heroes in a way. They began during the Babylonian captivity. And they said, we will not exist as a people unless we form a culture. And therefore, we have to take the law and apply it to every aspect of our lives. That's how they started. Then they got too rigid. But the notion that we can't live without a culture is clear. John Paul II said in his letter, um, opening the, you know, founding the Council for Culture of Faith, which does not become culture, a faith which does, so faith has to become a culture. It's a faith which has not been fully received, completely thought out, or completely embraced. So, that's us. Uh, I baptize with water, but there is one among you whom you do not recognize. 
the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am unworthy to tie. This happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so you see, uh, this first witness gets as far as there is one coming whom you do not recognize. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Now, this is the way John is constructing this, this section. Every time he makes a break, huh, we have the next day, in verse 21, 35, 43, and so forth. And we're going to count them up. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And another word of revelation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. Now he's pointing him out. There he is. That is the Lamb of God. That is the sacrificial lamb. That is the one sighted like a lamb before his shearer in, in Isaiah. That is the sacrificial lamb. That's the lamb. This is, you see how this is, the titles are getting uh, more and more profound. He's the one going to baptize in the Spirit. Uh, that is not said of him yet, but it will be said, said soon. Um, but now he's the lamb. Of God. He is the one of whom I said, A man is coming after me who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And now we have this passage. I did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. Now, what was John doing? You see, he had this water rite. When people came, they were plunged in the Jordan confessing their sins and starting life again. They were accepting their vocation to be Israelites, to be Jews. It was a conversion. And so, but he kept saying, I'm baptizing you in water. There's one coming who will baptize you in the Spirit. And with that, he alludes to that whole theme in the Old Testament of God pouring out the Spirit, which is, at the eschatological, the last definitive moment. When he comes, everything is new. This when, And there is one coming who will baptize in the Spirit. This is Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36, Joel. Everybody knew what he was alluding to. I am going to do this for you. I'm going to point him out. Now he describes how he knew him. I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from the sky and remain upon him. Now we all know that's, that's in all the synoptics, that vision when he baptized Jesus. But the part he says here, and remain upon him. You see, he didn't just rush upon him and then leave him. He abides with him. The Holy Spirit, you know, his eternal equal companion is now hovering over his humanity, guiding him, baptizing him. You see? Um, for the one who sent me to baptize with water, I didn't know him until, but he told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who will begin 
this last act in the plan of God's salvation for the world. And it's summed up by saying, baptize in the Holy Spirit. Which means, pour out the Spirit. This is why Peter, in his speech at Acts, quotes Joel. This is what's happening right now. You see all these people singing, praising God, able to preach in languages they don't know. This is the undoing of the Tower of Babel, where they were scattered through language. Now it's being brought back through diversity of languages. You see, this is the beginning of the final age. We're still living in the final age. And so, you see, as uh, Benedict XVI said, baptism in the Spirit, which is for the whole church, means to be aware of what was given to us in baptism and confirmation. Everybody has to be baptized. Everybody has to get it that they're living by the Holy Spirit, have the courage to preach the gospel, to die for Christ, and to protect this world from destruction. Everybody, and that's why he says, I urge everybody, my brothers and sisters, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to become aware. Any way you want to become aware, beg, borrow, steal it, but become aware. You need an experiential faith if you're going to preach the gospel, if you're going to live the Christian life, and if you're going to help the world. You've got to know what you're talking about. It's that simple. And so, uh, that's that day. Now comes another day. The next day. So what we're going to do is stop now uh, and then pick up the next day at the break, after the break.